0: You can write a very lousy, long historical novel full of sex and can be a bestseller and can be treated respectfully. Yes. But the, a very good thriller writer who writes far, far better it just gets a little paragraph, that's yeah, all. That's Mostly. Yeah. There's no attempt. To judge him as a writer. Well, I don't know, I suppose, but you yourself are judged as a writer, and Dashiell Hammett. Was, oh, yes, and then how long did it take me? You starve to death for ten years before your publisher knows you're any good. <laughs> la Jolla, California,
1: 1947. We're at 6005 Camino de la Costa, at the home of Raymond Chandler. It's been three years since the 59-year-old wrote a full-length novel. Instead he's worked on two screenplays. Chandler co-adapted Double Indemnity with Billy Wilder, and he penned The Blue Dahlia. Both earned Academy Award nominations. Looking for more income, his agent has negotiated a deal for Chandler to help bring a 13-week summer series to NBC. It'll sub for Bob Hope on Tuesday nights. The main character? Chandler's detective, Philip Marlowe. To date, Marlowe has been the focal point of four novels and four films, including two almost simultaneously released the past winter. This will, however, be the first time that Philip Marlowe comes to radio's airwaves in a regular show. Tonight, we'll go back in time and spotlight that summer's highest-rated replacement series, The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, starring Van Heflin. Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 130. My name is James Scully. Tonight we head to the summer of 1947 and get to the bottom of NBC's Philip Marlowe, Caper. If this is the first time you're listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Our opening song is Martin Denny's version of Cool. It embodies tonight's hero character, Philip Marlowe who's influenced the detective genre for the past 85 years. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com groups slash The If you like this show, share it on social media. Word of mouth is the best form of advertising. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com. Slash the wall breakers. Well, first of all, the syndicate decided
0: has to decide that he must be killed. They don't want to kill people. It's bad business nowadays. Then when they make the decision, they telephone to a couple of chaps, say, in Minneapolis, Mm -hmm. who old hardware stores or something or other, and have a respectable business front. And these chaps come along to New York and they're given their instructions. They're told, they're given a photograph of the man and told what's known about him. And when they get on the plane if they have to get on the plane, yeah, many they're afterwards. given guns. When no, they not them in Minneapolis. Oh. No, after they get the instructions. Yeah. They're, they're given guns. Yeah. Now these guns are not defaced in any way. Wow. But there are guns that have passed through with so many hands that they can present owners so can never be traced. The company could say the first purchaser. So they go uh, to where the man lives. They get an apartment across the street from him or a room. And they study him for days and days and days until they know just exactly when he goes out, when he comes home, yeah. what he does. And when they're ready, they simply walk up to him and shoot him. Mm. They have to have a crash car. Bugsy Siegel was a great man for the crash car. Yeah. The crash car is in case a police car should come down the street. Yeah. And it accidentally, on purpose, smashes the police car. Yes, that's true. So they is. ever thought they get away, they get back from the plane, go home, that's all there is to it. And so they, they drop the gun? Guns, those. They drop the guns uh, at the spot, do they leave? They them? always drop the guns, yes. And wear gloves? How many fingerprints have ever been taken off guns? Yes, quite.
1: It's what so they, they always hold
0: do? them by the butt. Yes. That's quite true. How much do they get paid for that each? Ten thousand. 10,000 each? Mm-hmm. If it's an important man. Yes. a small money to the syndicate. Yes. And then they go back to their jobs in the hardware stores in uh, Minneapolis. Yes. And... yes. quite, quite impersonal. Yeah, they don't mind one or the other, They don't care anything about the man. They don't it's care if he's dead or alive. No. It's just a job to them. Yeah. Of course, they have to be a certain sort of people yes, or they is. wouldn't do it. I mean, they're not like us. We wouldn't do it. No. Difficult thing to imagine doing. Well, I've known people I'd like to shoot. Anybody in England? No, not in England. What do you want to shoot them for? I just thought they were better dead.
1: Chandler was born on July 23, 1888, in Chicago, Illinois. He spent his early years in Nebraska until his father, an alcoholic railway civil engineer, abandoned the family. In 1900, his Irish mother Florence moved with Raymond to England. Chandler went to Dulwich College in London. In 1907, he became a naturalized British subject and took a job as an admiral, but resigned. He grabbed a reporter position at the Daily Express and later the Westminster Gazette. Unhappy in England, Chandler wanted to be a writer, so he returned to America in 1912. He settled in San Francisco, where he took a correspondence course in bookkeeping. His mother joined him there soon after. They moved to Los Angeles in 1913. Where he strung tennis rackets, picked fruit, and found steady employment with the Los Angeles Creamery. But then, the U.S. and Canada finally joined World War I. In 1917, Chandler enlisted in the Canadian Expeditionary Force. He saw combat in the trenches in France and was twice hospitalized with the Spanish flu. He was in flight training with the Royal Air Force when the war ended. He returned to Los Angeles and began a love affair with Sissy Pascal, a married woman eighteen years his senior. She amicably divorced her husband in 1920, but Chandler's mother disapproved of the relationship and refused to sanction the marriage. For the next four years Chandler supported both. His mother passed away in 1923. Raymond married Sissy on February 6, 1924. Having begun in 1922 as a bookkeeper and auditor, by 1931, he was a highly paid VP at the Dabney Oil Syndicate. But he suffered frequent mental health breakdowns. He drank too much, skipped work, was promiscuous with female employees, and publicly threatened suicide. Chandler was fired in 1932.
0: week at this time, the makers of G. Washington's coffee bring you a story from the Sherlock Holmes series of mystery dramas. This week's adventure is an adaptation of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's story entitled, The Final Problem. Remember as you listen to it that G. Washington solves your daily coffee problem just as surely as Holmes solves his famous mystery. At the end of the program, we have a brief announcement about Dr. Watson and his friend Sherlock Holmes. Please listen for it. And that opening paragraph is always leads us to Dr. Watson's comfortable, hospitable study. Well, there's a blazing fire and a steaming cup of G. Washington coffee to welcome.
1: Detective and suspense shows had been on radio since the medium's inception. Thank you, Dr. Watson. They were often similar to dime store novels. Sherlock Holmes began in 1930. Chandler taught himself to write pulp-style fiction by analyzing a novelette by Earl Stanley Gardner. His first story, Blackmailers Don't Shoot, was published in Black Mask magazine in 1933. His lead character was called Mallory. It took him five months to finish the story, or else Stanley Gardner wrote entire stories in three or four days. Chandler later said, wandering up and down the Pacific Coast in an automobile, I began to read pulp magazines. This was in the great days of Black Mask. It struck me that some of the writing was pretty forceful and honest, even though it had a crude aspect. I decided that this might be a good way to try to learn to write fiction and get paid a small amount of money at the same time. I spent five months on an 18,000-word novelette and sold it for $180. After that, I never looked back, although I had many uneasy periods looking forward. Although he never wrote with the speed of Gardner or Dashiell Hammett, throughout the 1930s Chandler infused a literate background into Pulp Fiction. His writing had touches of Fitzgerald like romanticism and Faulkner like descriptiveness. Southern California was the chief setting. Along with Mallory, two other detectives, Carmody and John Dalmas, became main characters. The short story titles were as hard boiled as the action. Among them were The Smart Alec Kill, Finger Man, Spanish Blood, Guns at Cyrano's, Pickup on Noon Street. Mandarin's Jade, Red Wind, The King in Yellow, Pearls are a Nuisance, and Trouble is My Business. In early 1939, Chandler began to combine plot lines and elements from previous stories into an expanded, cohesive novel. He decided his detective needed a new name, something that sounded both tough and educated. Carmody, Mallory, and Dalmus were retired. In their place, Chandler inserted a character that would go on to be one of the most famous fictional detectives of the 20th century, Philip Marlowe.